0: Um, good morning. Today we are going to be continuing in our study of God's extra-Trinitarian love, um, finishing our look through 1 Corinthians 13. Um, I think Pastor Peter is going to come up here next week and discuss some more on this topic. So, always, always. Um, you know, I'm afraid we might never get through this, topic. but um, but really that would be Okay. Because, because there, there is so much in this topic that, that there is a sense in which we should never get past it. Um, this, that this is the driving force of what God has done in deeming us for himself. Um, that we should never move beyond uh, this reality as we learn about God and go to live and love others in our own life. So, um, but we are going to try to finish First Corinthians 13 this morning. Um, and If you remember, we're looking at First Corinthians 13, verse as a picture of how God has loved us before it is a description or a list of ways that we need to go and love others and when we see it that way, it, it both raises the bar for what it means to love as we see the way God has loved us it, it cuts through any of the, the loopholes or the, the but what abouts, we might be asking of, of what does it really look like to love others and it also shows us where we get the strength to love others as we have been loved. That this is not love we're pulling out of ourselves. This is love that we are first seeing and receiving, and only then going to pursue and do likewise. Um, today, when we look at this descriptions of love in 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to see a number of, of contrasting examples of God's love. Whereas last week, we saw some positive examples where God's love is patient. God's love is Today, a lot of the descriptions are going to be what God's love is not. And as we we look at at God's love and and consider what it means for God's love to not be irritable, we're necessarily going to think of some of the ways that we fail to love, or that human love is inadequate or insufficient. But, But even as we're looking at those pictures and considering the negative examples, Let's look at that first as how amazing it is that God's love is not like ours, is greater than ours. Let's still be seeing that this is the way God has loved us. It's different. It's better than the way we fail to love one another before we go and and beat ourselves up or or think about all the ways we have failed to love. See God's love first and let it motivate us and empower us to make whatever changes or, or grow in love in whatever areas God is showing us in our own life. Um, so let's, let's go through this again. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, and then go through the remaining six sort of sections or groupings of description. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So what is it we're seeing in this? Let's just meditate on this for the rest of the morning. What does it mean that love does not envy or boast? Right? Envying and boasting are both, both relational dynamics. You, you have to have two people involved in, um, at least, And what you're going to see in that sense, I think what's common to those two is is both envying and boasting want good to flow towards me, right? In the case of envying, I might see the good that someone else has and say, I wish that should be mine. I want what they have. And in boasting, you're saying that you're seeing the good that maybe you have in yourself and saying, I want you to recognize what I have. I want you to recognize what I've done. I want you to flow praise and recognition and honor towards me. And what's remarkable is that that is not the way God has loved us. Right? And, and He could have. <clears throat> God could have organized the universe just so that everything was all about flowing good to Him all the time and, and no one else was really considered or regarded, but, but that's not the way he's related to us. When he encounters us, we see him lowering himself, humbling himself, and bringing good to us. Most obviously, Philippians 2, 3 to 8, we see how he's done this in Christ. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the way God's love has related to us, not demanding good from us, but moving toward us and giving good to us at least in Jesus, right? But you might have a question as, as I'm talking about God does not demand that good all flows towards him. Is that, is that mostly what Jesus does? Isn't there some sense in which the Father does demand that good flows in him, that, that we recognize and worship him? It, if I'm saying that love does not boast is a description of the way God has loved us, is Is that true? Is is that really the way God has loved us? Well, certainly there is a sense in which we are to worship and praise God. But what I think you find if you look into this, that even in his demands that we worship him, God is seeking our good. C.S. Lewis has helped me think through this probably more than anyone else. And in his um, thoughts on the Psalms, he meditates on... uh, the number of times God we're demanded to worship God in the Psalms, and here's what he reflects: says, "I think we delight to praise what we enjoy, because the praise does not merely express but completes the enjoyment. It is not; it is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliments that lovers keep on telling one another how beautifully they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed." It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is, to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent, because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. But like, do you see this in your own life? If you if you watch a movie that you love, or read a book, or or eat a... a pie or a cookie that's just amazing You, you want to tell someone about that if you can't share that joy with someone else it's frustrating because you enjoy it more when you praise it it's the completion of your enjoyment and so when God demands that we worship Him He's really demanding that we enjoy Him we are benefiting from His worshiping him. Even his commands to us, we find in the Psalms, lead to our joy, to our good. Psalm 19, 7 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. God does not just command that we obey him so he can move forward his agenda throughout the world. God commands that we obey him because that's where we will find joy. He doesn't need our worship. He's got angels, the likes of which, if we saw, we would be tempted to bow down and worship those amazing beings standing around doing nothing but worshiping him all day. He didn't need to add us to the choir. He commands that we enjoy him also for our good as all of his love for us is an overflowing of good for the other. What would it look like for us to learn to love that way? To relate to others on the basis of the good we can do for them. Even when we are sharing our faith, when we are pointing them to something greater. We were saying, you should not live this way. You should should worship God. We're not just demanding that they recognize how right we are. That we're saying, I have found this thing that I love more than anything else and I want you to share it for your good. That we would love the way God has loved. Not envying or boasting, demanding good comes to us, but seeking the good of others. Next slide section. Love is not arrogant or rude. Now, these are also both uh, relational distinctions, as all of these are going to be. Um, but but what arrogance and rudeness have in common is that they sort of assume the other person can be dismissed or disregarded. Right? Arrogance assumes that that other person really doesn't have anything worth hearing. Just my thoughts are sufficient. I don't. I'm not really interested in what you have to say. Rudeness sort of says, I I can ignore the impact on you. Maybe intentionally, I'm just gonna not pay attention to whatever, how what I'm doing affects you. I can dismiss you, I can disregard you. And and I, reflecting on this, found a lot of this in myself, particularly growing up. I I was homeschooled um, and and particularly arrogant towards my mother, um, who was my teacher. Uh, had really uh, no problem just correcting her in the middle of a lesson if I found something that she said wrong, even if that lesson was in front of other people outside of our family. Um, just no real consideration for how that would impact her or w- what she would feel about that. I wasn't trying to hurt her feelings. Right? I wasn't trying to be mean or had this adversarial relationship. I just didn't notice. I just wasn't paying attention to how what I was doing and what I was saying was impacting her. I wasn't considering that maybe in this lesson she knows something that I don't know and I should be focused mostly on trying to figure that out rather than just looking for where I can correct her. Fortunately, I had a mom who was very hard to disregard and ignore, and it's very obvious that she knew much more than I did. Um, And so I was able to see my own arrogance as well as learn what she was trying to teach me. But if anyone had the right to treat people this way, again, it would be God. If anyone had the right to disregard other people, to say, there's really nothing you can teach me. There's really nothing that you have to give to me. And I really don't have to pay any attention to you. It would be God. God's every response to us could be just like what he says in the beginning of Job 38, where after 37 chapters almost of, of these men trying to figure out why these bad things have happened to a good person, God finally opens up his response with these words. He says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And then he goes on for the next the rest of the book showing all of the things that Job doesn't know and can't understand. And that's how God could treat us in every case. Why are you even talking to me? What? Just, just stop talking. But actually what's remarkable about Job is not what God says. It's the fact that God responds in the first place. Job, God didn't have to say anything to Job at all. What we get is chapters of his giving himself to Job. Not answering his question. He is correcting him in a way. But he's giving him himself. And that's how God responds to us. Have you considered how remarkable it is that God interacts with us at all? Psalm 8 reflects on this. It says, When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of? him, And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. Sometimes I go outside and I look up at the night sky, um, and I've been learning to find where the planets are recently. So I can look up and see, oh, there's Mars. I see this little tiny red dot. And between me and that planet, there's just a few molecules of nitrogen and oxygen and nothing. And beyond that, stars, so far away, it's taken years for the light to even get to me, And I am standing here exposed under this vast universe, infinitesimally small. Why does God pay any attention to me here in the midst of this giant space? And yet, he does. He doesn't stay distant up among the stars. He came down to be with us, to identify with us, so that we could draw near to him. Hebrews 4. 15 and 16, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have seen love and that God came down in Jesus, so that we would always have one standing at the throne, that we would have a place to speak to God. That's what love has looked like not arrogant or rude or dismissive. What would it be for us to love like that? To give ourselves, to pay attention to, to listen and care for people, not on the basis of how much they deserve it, but because that's what love does. Not to disregard even the man standing on the corner with his cardboard signs to listen seriously to the thoughts and fears of little children. Not to disregard or cut off ourselves off from people who disagree and hate everything that we do. Not because they deserve it. Just because that's what love does. It is not everything. It is not real. Love does not insist on its own way. Again, I've set myself up a challenge trying to see all of these as God's love for us. What does it mean that God does not insist on his own way? Right, well, one thing at least it can't mean is that God does not insist on his righteousness. Right, we've said before, God's love and his justice, God's love and his righteousness are not opposed. And you find this in Exodus 34, where you see both of them in the same verses, God describes himself as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Abounding in steadfast love, but never compromising righteousness. He does insist that right is right but we also see that he does accommodate us. What do I mean? Okay, you remember the story of the golden calf. The Israelites have come out of Egypt. Moses goes up to the mountain, and after 40 days, the people figure, I guess he's not coming back. Um, I guess we need to make our own God now. So they go talk to Aaron, and Aaron gets all their gold and makes this golden calf. And when God, or Moses, comes down the mountain, He sees what they have done. God says, Moses, stand aside. I'm going to destroy these people. They've already broken the covenant. We're done. And Moses intercedes. He pleads on their behalf. And God relents and does not destroy them. If you have a question on God's sovereignty there, I did talk about this back in January, so you can go listen to that. I'm not going to get into that obvious question. But do you see what happened here? the people did not follow God's plan, and so God made a new plan. If if obeying all of the law and God being present with his people was plan A, we're on plan B now. And sure, God could have, it's, I think it's clear that God planned to do that all along. This is not like God didn't know this was going to happen. But from our perspective, what plan are we even on at this point? Right, if plan A was... Adam and Eve in the garden, obeying God and not eating from that tree. What plan are we on now? Right? This wasn't, this even falling in the wilderness with the Israelites wasn't plan A. That was plan W or something. Like, where are we? <laughs> but for the sake of God bearing with us, he accommodates. Where we fail his plan, he makes a new plan. Where his kings prove inadequate, he sends a better king not a question of compromising right and wrong, but it's a question of, will you work with people in a sinful and broken world that need your accommodation, your patience? What would it look like for us to love others that way? Not always insisting on what we believe and what may really be the best way in areas where we differ in emphasis and priority and maturity and understanding of God's word, do we insist that it has to be this way or you're out my way or the highway or are we willing to work with people to accommodate them? Because for love's sake, we want them to be with us more than we need it to be exactly the way we thought it was going to go. Love is not irritable or resentful I think we all know what that's like right and, and for me when I think of being irritable you can guess I'm going to think of my kids because there's just nothing more irritating than whining it's literally designed to disturb me until I give in that's the point point. and sometimes you know it's coming right like dinner time when you don't want to eat your dinner but I know if you don't, right before we brush our teeth, who's going to be hungry? Again. Right? I think this happened last night. This isn't an illustration. This is a demonstration of irritation. You can see it coming out. (laughs) But God does not treat us that way. Just because we've seen examples of irritation and resentment, God never feels that way towards us. Psalm 103 describes how vast God's love for us is. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. God's love for us is overwhelming. If there were ever any bit of irritation or resentment in him, his love would overwhelm us. And he's already dealt with all of our sins. We show up to a moment where we are failing again, and what we find is God's love has gone there before us. Remember, we talked about God's love being omniscient, which means that when he chose to love us, When he chose to deal with our sins, he chose to do that not just for the sins we already know about, but for all of the sins that we are ever going to commit. He already knows. He's already decided to love us in those moments. So we show up to this moment where we failed again, where we don't want to eat our dinner or whatever the setting sins we have within us, and we find God's love is there ahead of us. He's not irritable in that moment. He's not resentful that we're doing this again. He's already dealt with it. And as a father, I can understand this just a little bit. If God is a perfected father, then his love is like my love, which, while I may still be irritated with my kids, I may bring up the baggage of, you did this with him before, i got some resentment built up from this. That's never going to outweigh my love for my children. It's not even going to come close. That's what a father is loves that. Compassion for his children. How can we love this way? We we don't get to be omniscient. We don't get to deal with situations ahead of time. We have to show up in the moment and irritation is going to come forth. So What do we do when we step step into that moment? Maybe a sin that you've dealt with again and again and again in someone close to you's life. You can remember God has been to this moment. God knew it was coming. He's not irritated or resentful with your irritation and resentment. His love has showed up in this moment before you got here. He'd love you. He loves them. And so when we remember the way God has loved us ahead of time for everything we ever would do, love that person for everything they ever would do, we can begin to understand where we get the strength, not have irritation, not to give in to the resentment of that moment. Again. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. All right, if you're just reading this quickly through on your Bible reading plan, those are probably, I don't know if that's going to click and make a whole lot of sense. Those kind of feel like different categories, right? Love, wrongdoing, and truth. Okay, I, I guess that's good. that sounds good, but what is it, what is it talking about? I think actually our culture helps us understand this a little bit. If you're paying attention, uh, the way the world is defining love these days often includes something like you need to affirm that person for whatever is best for them, whatever they feel is best for them. And so, if if a man decides that after 20 years and three kids, he's he's no longer in love with his wife, just Times have been hard, they've drifted apart, they've gone different ways. This is just not happy for him anymore. The kids have moved out, it's not going to hurt them. And so he found this other life, this other woman, this other place that he wants to move into. Love would say, the world would say, that you should want him to be happy. That's what love would do. And you can fill that blank in with a bunch of different categories of how people would say that that this is what I need to be happy and love needs to affirm them and the choices that they are making. And what this is saying is that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love only rejoices with the truth. The truth that we believe God has defined. And we see that love motivates God. To correct us when we go into wrongdoing he doesn't affirm us in whatever we think is going to make us happy he knows what he is directing us as a wise father. Hebrews 12:6 for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives just like a parent will correct a misbehaving child not because they love righteousness more than the child. those aren't opposed correct my children because I love them. Because I know some things are bad for them. If you eat only cookies every night, it's going to be bad for you. I don't care if you feel like that's what makes you happy. And the world actually understands this. I don't want to beat up on the world too falsely. They, they actually get this category. right? If Oliver came to me and said, Dad, I think the career that's going to make me the happiest is to be a computer scanner. I'm going to get really good at sending out phishing emails and getting people's bank accounts. Or or if he told me, I just feel my most authentic self when I am high on heroin. No one would have any problem with me correcting them and that being a loving action. They actually understand that love and truth do go together at some level. All they disagree about is what is true. But we believe that truth is defined by a God who loves. And that when he corrects us, he does it as a loving father. That what he points us to is always what is best for us. And not only that he is a correcting father, that he's going to come in and point us to where we need to go, but that when we go that way, when we go towards truth, he rejoices. Love rejoices with the truth. The father of the prodigal son could not rejoice when the son decided that what he would make him happy is if he could take his inheritance and go to a far country and spend it on foolish living. But he wept in that day. But when he saw his son coming home, he threw a party. He ran down to hug him. He rejoiced that this son who was lost had come home. That's how we know a father loves us. Not only that he corrects that he celebrates our growth. He celebrates when we go in, grow in truth. Is that what our love looks like? That we love people such that we're willing to point them away from wrongdoing that they want to, but also that we celebrate the good things that we see around us. That we love. The world may not like when we can't affirm certain lifestyle choices that people want to make, and and there may not be much we can do about that. But we can make sure that they know we are a people that rejoice with truth. Is that how they hear us? Not just as people who talk and and moan about the, the decline in marriage around us, but as people who celebrate the marriages in our life the marriages of our friends, the marriages of people who've endured difficulty, our own marriages? Are we people who just talk about that That we need to make sure men and women are understood as different and that we, we can give you the biblical explanations for why you should not conflate those? Or do they see us as people who celebrate and look to creatively find all that it means to be a man and all that it means to be a woman? And we love these realities and we foreground this and we celebrate this. Do our children hear us mostly correcting, or do they hear us celebrating when they're growing in the truth? Or maybe grandchildren. Um, love cannot celebrate wrongdoing, but love rejoices with the truth. Last group here. Love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If you read Evan May's book on 1 Corinthians, he will say love is omni-enduring. It endures through everything. That's its unifying attribute. Which can be another confusing picture when you consider, is that how God has loved his people? All right, because it does seem like sometimes God does not endure. Right? Remember Moses, right? All of the faithful ways that he leads the people through all of this, what must have been extremely frustrating years in the wilderness, and then one time, he messes up with the rock, and then doesn't get to go into the promised land. Did God's love endure for him or then? Or the Israelites, right? Many, many years, many, many kings, God sends warning after warning, and he corrects, and he... Um, tries to send revival, but eventually there comes a day when God is done and the people are sent to exile. Jerusalem is destroyed. Did God's love just endure for a long time, but not forever? I think it's helpful to contemplate that because I think what you have to do to understand what it means for, that love bears all things is that love bearing all things is not the same as judgment forbearing, That your love may endure through a variety of actions. And that sometimes it is loving for me to give patience with my children. Not to come down quickly, to talk them through a situation, to to help them understand and give them another chance. And sometimes it is loving for me to say, no, that is done, you are punished. My actions can be varied. But what love must do is endure through either case. No matter what action I have to take, no matter what's the right course of action, no matter what wisdom dictates I need to do, love must be there on the other side. And the love that must be on the other side is a love that is not diminished, that bears all things, that believes all things, that hopes all things. I think it's important to make that distinction because sometimes I think people read this passage and, and put a weight on themselves that's that's a little bit off balance. Sometimes you read this passage, you might feel that if you put up any sort of barriers in a dysfunctional relationship or um, in extreme cases, if, if you leave an abusive household, that you have failed to follow this passage, that you have failed to endure. But the actions you take, you. You can't just apply endure to any category. Love endures, whether you stay or go, whether you set up boundaries or however you choose to relate to that person. Love must be full and wholehearted in any case. And those are just different things. And that's the way God has loved us, that through all of his judgment, he never wrote his people off entirely. His love did not flicker. It came through unscathed. And on the other side, he still believed in the darkest moment. The prophets could write, in the midst of the judgment, that hope was still coming. That God was still going to save his people. Love endured through even the most difficult situations. And that's how we are to love. And how how do we do that? If you think of some of the difficult relationships you may have in your life. I have some difficult people in my life. How do you have a love that doesn't fade or flicker even through difficult times? How do you have a love that believes all things, that hopes all things when there's not a shred of evidence in that relationship or in that person that would give you any hope or any trust? You can't do it if you're trying to pull love out of your but if you remember the way God has loved you, the way God has changed you in ways you could never have accomplished on your own, no one could have predicted, you could not have brought that out of your sight, God's love for you has endured through all things. And so when you look at the difficult, broken situations in your life, you're not looking at what that person. Can the love of God change them? Can the love of God do all things in them? Can the love of God give you hope for what you see as a hopeless situation? The only source of a love like this is the love of God for his people. And when we remember that, we find we have the strength to love them the way God has loved us. In conclusion, hope what we have seen through this is that love is not something that we get to just define or that we should assume we understand what it means unless we have seen the way God has defined love love is from God and it's defined by him it's an overflow of the love for other that he has within the trinity himself that he has given to us through Christ we have seen love in the way he came and died for sinful. And we have received love that he has put in us with his spirit so that all of the descriptions of the way he has loved within himself and loved fallen humanity now lives in us. And that the love he has for us raises the bar and empowers us to love in ways we could never have done on our own. So we should read passages like 1 Corinthians 13, not as a list of things you need to figure out on your own but as a description of all the love that God has given to you that you now have to give to others oh, that's been-